when we get triggered, our default response tends to be either venting about it to others or suffering in silence. There are, of course, better options. On this episode, Sally Helgeson joins me to explore how to respond in a more useful way. This is Coaching for Leaders, episode 620. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show helps you discover leadership wisdom through insightful conversations. If you spend any amount of time working with anyone in the workplace, or certainly personally too, you know that you found yourself being triggered when someone comes to a conversation or an experience that's different than you are. Lots of ways. I can think in my own career, I have not only felt that trigger, but also I'm sure have triggered others. Today in this conversation, how we can respond better when those triggers do happen and how we can think about it in a way that, yes, is helpful to us, also helpful to the other person and helpful to also to the organization. I'm so glad to welcome Sally Helgeson to the show. She has been cited by Forbes as the world's premier expert on women's leadership. She's a best-selling author, speaker, and leadership coach. She's been named by Thinkers 50 as one of the world's top 20 coaches and ranked number six among the world's thought leaders by global gurus. She is the author of several books, including The Female Advantage, Women's Ways of Leadership, Hailed as a Classic in its Field, and The Female Vision, Women's Real Power at Work, which explores how women's strategic insights can strengthen their careers. Her book, The Web of Inclusion, A New Architecture for Building Great Organizations, was cited in the Wall Street Journal as one of the best books on leadership of all time and is credited with bringing the language of inclusion into business. She co-authored How Women Rise with executive coach Marshall Goldsmith, examining the behaviors most likely to get in the way of successful women. It became a top seller within a week of publication. Her newest book is Rising Together, How We Can Bridge Divides and Create a More Inclusive Workplace. Sally, what a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you, Dave. It's wonderful to be here. It was just last week, one of our members who didn't know you and I were talking this week was telling me, you have to check out this book by Sally Halkson on How Women Rise. I was like, great. What a good timing for the conversation. Thank you so much for all the work you've done. And I mentioned the word trigger in the opening of our conversation. It is a word that comes up in your work and in this book a lot. We've had Marshall Goldsmith on the show talking about triggers before. I know you've done a lot of work with him. When you think about a trigger, what is it? And what's important about thinking about triggers in the context of this book? Well, a trigger is basically anything that evokes a sudden emotional reaction in us because maybe we feel disrespected, we feel dishonored, or we feel unseen or unheard. Like, really? You've known me all this time, and you think I might think that. So uh, triggers are, they exist in the environment. We don't really have control over them. And the more we try to control triggers or prevent them from happening to us, the more we'll really be chasing our our tail. Much better is to think of effective ways to respond to triggers that 
occur in the environment. And I think, you know, Dave, this is particularly important in a highly diverse workplace where people with all kinds of not just backgrounds and experiences, but values come together. In this kind of workplace, we're more likely to feel triggered. Marshall Goldsmith, my colleague, described it as a nonstop triggering machine. And I think that is accurate. So part of what I try have tried to do in my new book, Rising Together, is really look at how can we most effectively respond to this? And then how can we also begin to practice habits and behaviors that will minimize the likelihood that we unnecessarily trigger other people into unproductive responses? And I think this is a skill that leaders can encourage and model and practice. And it's going to really open things up for their people. I think about what you just said, and of course, what a wonderful shift so many organizations and our society more broadly has made in moving more in the direction of diversity and inclusion. Obviously, we have a long way to go. and But also, to the point you just made, it brings new challenges. More diverse workforces are are inevitably we're going to find that the triggers are going to happen more often and different than perhaps we saw in the past. And I, I'm curious as you think about. I know a lot of your clients are women and and successful leaders. When you think about the kinds of triggers that they tell you about that they're experiencing. What are the kinds of things that you're seeing about and hearing about right now? Well, one of the triggers that I still hear and see hear about and see evidence of is when a woman will offer an idea in a meeting and it doesn't get picked up. And a couple minutes later, a man will say basically the same thing. And some of the people in the room, often other men will say, what a great idea, or I agree with that, or terrific. And then she feels triggered. She feels as if she is completely unseen, unheard, and often may feel reactive about it. You know, these guys just don't get it. No, men in our company can't listen to women. These are understandable, yet ultimately unproductive responses. And, and, and that's really what I'm trying to put out here. We can't, again, we can't stop triggers, but we can think about how can I respond in a way that is going to be effective? And one of the ways that I work with, with leaders and in my own coaching is trying to help them write an alternate script that explains what has just happened in a different way. I'm curious about something you just said of looking at this from the leadership side too, the person who might have power and influence in a situation. And it was really interesting to me that one of the examples you cite very early in the book is a manager who has is working to elevate, in the case of the example, one of the women in the organization. And I'm, I don't remember the exact details, but she's really hesitant of moving into the new role of new opportunity, despite his belief that she's ready for it and she's prepared. And him feeling really triggered by that. And it was really interesting that this can go both ways. It's not just the person who maybe felt like they were marginalized or doesn't have power. It can be the other side too, right? 
Oh, that's exactly true. And I've talked to, because it's very common often for women to not immediately say, oh, I'd love to do that when something is suggested to them. Women often feel that they have to have every single possible skill before they take on a new role, even though they've never had the role before. So there's no possible way they could have. And so when a male colleague will recommend them, they'll often get some pushback. Well, I don't think so. I'm not quite ready for that. Or I have more to learn. Or I'm still getting this job under my belt. And then that can be triggering for a man who thinks, well, really? What Do you lack ambition? Do you have another agenda here? What's going on? Why would you refuse to step up into this? So again, that can be triggering because it's a behavior that is not necessarily expected in the workplace. And so in that case, the the man can, and I've heard this, well, I guess she's not a player. So that's the sort of male equivalent there. And of course, we're making very schematic here with male and female. We know that we're a range of human beings, but it's deciding a response that doesn't give you a path forward. And and that's why I think we want to look at triggers, not in terms of what is a trigger and why does it hurt us and getting to all the whys, but how can we frame an effective response that that helps us move forward in a way that's more beneficial, beneficial to us and to those around us. The invitation here is not so much to get into the why of why does this person have this view, this behavior, but to look at an alternative script, a positive script. What does a positive script sound like? In the situations we just mentioned, what would that sound like if someone was creating a positive script for themselves? Yeah. Well, first of all, rather than judging that she's not a player, he might either ask some more questions about what was what was going on with her or ask questions oh what would you really be interested in where where do you see your career going maybe there's something in the future i could do to help you you don't have to answer now but just letting you know that i'm open to that so again what he's done is he's found a way to make her a potential ally, to offer her allyship, if you will, rather than making a decision that she's, you know, not somebody wants to necessarily invest time with because she's she lacks ambition or decisiveness. And similarly, with the one example I, I kind of gave that where you have the woman who feels that she hasn't been heard or the guy was trying to step on her idea or steal her idea or nobody listens to her, the positive script would be, oh, I see. He's supporting my idea. That's interesting. What a, what a terrific thing. So the positive script could then enable her to go up to him afterwards and say, oh, thanks for amplifying what I said. I'm glad you agree with it. Maybe there's something we could do to help move this forward. So that's a, it gives you a path to action. It makes an ally of somebody who you decided was disrespecting you. And the thing that's so important about this, really important, is you don't have to necessarily believe your positive script for it to be effective. You don't have to be sure that that's what he, in this case, that's what the guy was doing, that he was amplifying what you said. You 
You just have to put it in your mind and then kind of test it out as something that might be useful because it, again, it gives you, it gives you a path forward rather than keeping you stuck about, oh, this always happens and this is terrible. I'm hearing you say those alternative scripts. And one of the things that's coming up in my mind is the same objection you write about in the book that your clients tell you when you make that invitation is, I feel like it's really inauthentic to tell myself this made-up story. Like you said, may not even be true, right, about this person. And I highlighted a key line that you write on this. I'm quoting you. Being overly invested in our first responses increases our susceptibility to being triggered and limits our ability to frame an effective response. I call this the authenticity trap. Tell me more about that trap. Well, I've been thinking for a while that there's so much emphasis on being your authentic self, on on being true to yourself at every single moment right. in the workplace. Now, I understand this, especially from the diversity aspect, because women, people of color, people outside the leadership mainstream have often felt as if they had to suppress everything that was real about them in order to fit in. So that time has passed and that no longer feels like a sacrifice that people are necessarily willing to make, nor should they make. On the other hand, I think the pendulum has kind of swung in a further direction where we are a little bit over-invested in authenticity, which as, as you just read in that quote, is often our first response. Now, Marshall in his book, what got you here won't get you there, has one of the habits that is most likely to undermine successful people as they move into leadership positions. He calls it the excessive need to be me. And I think that's being encouraged often in the workplace now in the guise of authenticity. And it doesn't help. We want to balance authenticity with professionalism. We don't want to be so invested in authenticity that we don't really think about what would serve our best interests and our long-term interests in a certain situation. I I would imagine that that's a difficult line. I mean, I think about my own experience in my career, and I found that at times that's a difficult line to walk. And I've had privilege in every possible way, white, straight, lots of lots of opportunity. And I imagine for someone who's from an underrepresented demographic in the workplace, that, that's, that finding that line is hard. When you get into those conversations with clients of trying to navigate that, what's helpful of, on one hand, showing up in the authentic way that all of our organizations, I think, want us, I shouldn't say all, many organizations want us to these days and and invite. But at the same time, not going too far on that and not and not leaning into that so far that we don't, that we don't, we're not willing to think of, okay, what could be a, an alternate story here? Yeah, I think that it's, it's, we want to keep an open mind and It doesn't mean we shouldn't be forging a strong identity. This gets easier, obviously, as you get older. If you have maintained an open mind, you're not as concerned with forging that original identity or that sort of container that gets you through life. But recognizing that that's what it is and having a little bit more of an experimental attitude toward what 
how you might want to respond in situations. I think also that the word professional is very helpful in this situation, rather than in situations where you want to ask yourself, well, is this the authentic me, which may change. Again, I I had some things I was pretty invested in 10 years ago that I no longer would recommend to myself. But rather than is this authentic to me, just is this professional? What's the professional thing to do here? I think it's a more useful benchmark and can pull us away from feeling we have to, we have to, it's a, it's a little bit of a trap. It's a trap in the same way that the role model thing can be a trap for women, minorities, whoever is outside the leadership mainstream having to feel like it's your responsibility to always be a role model in addition to just trying to do your job and do the best you can and think about a great way to to live your life. So I think we we let these constructs trap us a little bit. And, and it's one of the things I'm trying to help nudge people away from here to look at something that may be more useful to them. Yeah. And speaking of useful, there's an element of utility, I hear, in creating an alternative script, a positive script about what might have just happened in this conversation, true or not, in that it leads to, I mean, one of the things you said a moment ago is that it leads to a different kind of behavior. Because I I think that the tendency is when most of us get triggered in whatever the situation is, the tendency tends to be like one of two things. Either we vent about it, sometimes publicly or sometimes privately, or we sort of suffer in silence. And the invitation I'm hearing from you here is that by creating an alternative script and telling ourselves a different story, that it invites a different response than one of those those kind of polar opposites that we tend to go to in that it engages a different kind of behavior of the what's next in the conversation. I strongly agree with that. It gives us more flexibility. It also makes us feel better in the moment and not in a fake or inauthentic way. Because if we're really considering what could be another interpretation here? How could I interpret this more positively than what's running through my mind? That puts us in a more cheerful, positive, and you know, energetic frame of mind than that jerk, he's always doing that, or why does this keep happening to me, or these people, are they don't get it, that kind of thing, whether we're thinking that in our own mind and sort of ruminating about it which will keep us stuck in a very negative groove, or whether we're venting about it, as you say, public venting is 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 highly ineffective. Even when it looks good on the surface, it looks like it had a good outcome, it is usually very difficult for the person who indulged it. So unless you're in a situation that's really time to blow the whistle here on something that is massively unethical, it it, it usually backfires. But private venting is highly ineffective. And it injects this sort of element of slight toxicity into our colleague relationships at work that, again, does not, it not only doesn't help us move forward, but it can make us the occasion of also keeping other people stuck because they feel loyal to the proposition we're putting out there that people like me, women, whatever, are not, you know, it's, it's impossible for us to break through. 
Yeah, I, I want to pull the thread a little bit on something you just mentioned a moment ago. And anyone who reads the book is going to hear this message loud and clear. There's obviously a caveat to some of the situations that arise in the workplace. Harassment, threats, abuse, that's not what we're talking about here. That's a whole different situation of response and involving HR and all the things that that are appropriate to do in that situation. We're not talking about those situations. We're talking about the Okay, this is a interaction that, you know, there's probably some different ways to interpret it and what may have felt triggering to one person may not feel triggering to someone else. And obviously there's a line there, right? Of course. For the person hearing this who's thinking, "Okay, I'm willing to try this. I get it. What you're saying, like mm-hmm. logically, I've got it. I'm willing to try it." When you work with a client and you're helping that person to start to write a different story, when they get triggered. What do you find as helpful as a starting point to get them writing a different story in the moment? I think one thing that's helpful is asking other people who might have some experience of working with that other individual where what they think are the really positive traits of that person so that they can put that in, they can factor that into the equation. So that's one way of doing it. The other way of doing it is really just pure self-assessment. What would help me to think in this situation? How could I benefit concretely from extending this, the, the benefit, I call it in the book, the benefit of my goodwill to this other person? What might be the outcomes? Would I feel calmer? Would I be able to tame my emotions and my fear in a meeting from contributing? What story would be most useful to me? Because after all, you're kind of making up the story, just like you in your mind are telling yourself a fairly negative story. So this this can be applied in very specific situations. In the book, I have the example of Colonel Diane Ryan, a colleague and friend of mine now. But Diane, when she was in the military, and she had a very distinguished career finishing up at West Point with quite a position there and heading a large leadership institute. And Diane said that until the day she retired, and I think she was in the military for almost, well, for 25 years, She said she had a situation where when she walked by a more junior officer or enlisted man, they would often pretend not to see her. And she said she knew what it was. She understood from having had it happen so many times and tested out the proposition. They didn't want to salute her because it showed that she was in a higher position than they were. And they did not want to think that a woman would be in a higher position. Obviously, this is not all the soldiers that she passed. But she said, in the military, there is a tradition that you must salute a senior officer. You absolutely must do that in all situations. And she would see them doing it to the next guy who walked by. And she knew they didn't want to say, oh, hello, ma'am, I salute you. So she decided that she couldn't walk by that. Because if she did, she would just set that standard. So every single time she said, maybe you didn't see me and and drew their attention to it. And 
so she, what she was doing, she said, I decided I needed to give them all the benefit of the doubt that they didn't see me. Half the time, I absolutely knew they did. Half the time, I was unsure. But that was my story to myself. They didn't see me. He probably didn't see me. He was probably thinking of something else. But she held them to account for it. And she said, I didn't lose much by telling myself that story. And what it did was it gave me a way to not be upset so I could just hold them to account and get them to salute me so I wasn't letting them establish that kind of behavior. So it was concrete, it was small, it was specific, it was highly behavioralist, but it was also very, very effective. Yeah, I love the story in the book, and you and I talked about that even before we started recording, and it's... And also, I think really interesting, like if someone said, hello, sir, she would very calmly and respectfully, she would correct and and say, yes. ma'am. And the other thing that was really interesting about that story to me is that she was really big on not humiliating the other person. That's right. What's key about that? That's really important because when you do an alternate script that extends the benefit of the doubt to the other person, extending the benefit of the doubt that that person, she's extending the benefit of the doubt to every enlisted person or more junior ranking officer who passes her and doesn't salute her, doesn't acknowledge her. She's extending that benefit of the doubt. Oh, he didn't see me. He thought I was a man. That's why he said, hello, sir. And, but that, and that is a generous, a generous action. So you can't really hold back on that. You can understand that maybe they didn't see me, maybe they didn't. But extending the benefit of the doubt does not involve also humiliating the person by calling them to account or accusing them, in this case, of not seeing you, of deliberately bypassing you. You want to give them an out that helps them save face and not be humiliated because you want to spread a positive and you want to create positive encounters here. I know there are people listening, some women in particular, who are hearing us have this conversation and saying, why do I always have to be the one to change my behavior? Why aren't we having the opposite conversation of what the other party should be doing to change their behavior? You hear that as well, too, from people you work with. When you hear that how do you frame that? Well, first of all, in the book, there are plenty of suggestions for people in power. How do we frame and shift their behaviors? And and what I've done for the 35 years I've been in this field was advo- is advocate ways in which leaders can shift their behavior. So that it's not a one-way street. But the point is that if something's happening to you and you feel that it would be benefit you to extend some generosity to someone at a more senior level. There's a difference in a power <laughs> power equation there, and y- you have more to gain by doing that than a person who's more powerful has to gain by rewriting the script about you in the immediate term. may not turn out that way. <laughs> One day they'll work for you, but it's you have more to gain because of the power differential. So in that case, and this is, I'm not advocating something really big or hard, and you might try it out and think, this doesn't work for me. There are reasons 
I don't think that I can keep doing this or I don't want to do it. All I'm advocating is giving it a shot because it can be so much more effective than reverting to the the venting with the with a friend who gets it, which is is a pretty sterile activity. You quote the ancient author Sun Tzu from The Art of War in the book and say that he taught that using indirection or redirection to disarm an opponent is preferable to the direct engagement of combat, less costly and ultimately more effective. And I think about that in what you just said in using the, the alternate script that rather than suffering in silence or venting or the HR complaint, which both of those extremes often don't end up usually in good places that really move the needle. Here's an opportunity to try something. I'd love the invitation just to try it. Whether you feel it in your bones or not, that it's that it's, it's feeling authentic, but just to try it, try that alternative script with the intention of, I'm, I'm doing this to help me, and I'm doing this to actually precipitate a different kind of outcome. And I love the examples you've cited of just a little bit of that, like so powerful how that can really start to move the needle in a way that honors other people, doesn't need to humiliate. I mean, it's just... It, it just it's it's just something I think we should all try it, 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 to see if we can do. <laughs> and again, for leaders, it's good to have an awareness of this so they can model it, but also that it's a good teaching tool for people to create a more alliance-oriented culture. And and again, the point you made before, we're talking about everyday triggers. We're talking about everyday instances, which happen all the time, of not feeling heard, of not feeling honored. And we're not talking about things like harassment or ethics violation or ongoing patterns of of abuse from from people in authority. I'm not recommending it in these situations. Yeah. No, I'm so glad you said that out loud. It's just such an important distinction to make. And there's such a wonderful path to go down in the book. There's eight of the most common triggers you look at in detail in the book, how you can start to look at those differently, form some of the alternative scripts and stories. I think it's really, I think for any of us who find ourselves running into these triggers of either that venting or that suffering feeling and having that regularly, like what a great starting point this book would be as having a few different ways to approach these situations. And I just, I love that you've made this available to us and done so much thinking on this and worked with so many leaders to help them to move forward. Thank you so much for all of this. Thank you, Dave. You you mentioned earlier in the conversation that there's some things that you were authentic to you 10 years ago that you wouldn't necessarily tell yourself today. I have that feeling about every day too. <laughs> so one of the things I think is really helpful for us all to hear is just especially those who have developed such an expertise and you have so much in the work you do of what we've changed our minds on. And as you look back, maybe over the last couple of years, and thinking about your work and especially supporting women in leadership, what's something that you've changed your mind on? Well, one of the things I changed my mind on relates specifically to this new book, Rising Together. As you know, from having read the book, I was spurred by a question I got at a women's leadership program in Las Vegas, the construction industry where a lot of men showed up and I asked why they were there. And 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 one of the men said, please don't waste our time or your time telling us about why we need to get better at becoming better places for women and other you know traditional outsiders to work. We get that. We don't know 
how to do it. So I thought that's what I'm, that's what I want to do here. I want to provide the how. And at the time I felt because I had a number of clients who'd invested heavily in unconscious bias training and complained that it didn't move the needle at all. It didn't change the culture in any way. So I felt that, you know, I think that what I can put out there is going to be much more effective and But I don't feel that anymore. I feel that what I'm doing by providing something that's a how is providing a potential complement to it. As I say in the book, it's kind of aha moment. Now what? I understand that I have this internal bias. I see how it's bothering me, but what do I do now? So I've really changed my mind on that. So it's it's really, I would say, made me a lot more open-minded on that topic. Sally Helgeson is the author of Rising Together, How We Can Bridge Divides and Create a More Inclusive Workplace. Sally, thank you so much for your work. Oh, my pleasure, Dave. I really enjoyed this. It was a very rich conversation. If this conversation was helpful to you, four related episodes I'd recommend. The first one is episode 529, The Way Out of Major Conflict. Amanda Ripley was my guest on that episode. We talked about what she calls high conflict, conflict that has gotten out of control, that people who normally would behave well in a conflict situation all of a sudden find themselves overcome by the conflict that is happening inside the organization or maybe even more broadly. And one of the key points she makes in that conversation and in her research is that humiliating others almost always comes back to backfire on us. It's a very important and key warning from her in the research on avoiding humiliation in any way possible. One of the key points, many more in episode 529. In addition, three other episodes that I'd recommend this conversation today with Sally, looking at it from the perspective of the individual. But of course, most of the conversations we've had in recent years on topics like this are looking at it from the perspective of those who have power, leaders, managers in organizations, and what we can do differently to set the right tone. Several episodes I'd recommend that you also listen on that. One of them is episode 556, End Imposter Syndrome in Your Organization. Jody Ann Bury was my guest on that episode. We talked about this term imposter syndrome and how often we assign it to others. Jody Ann challenges us on that and invites us, especially those of us with power, to think about the context of culture around what we often call imposter syndrome and invites us to think a little differently about it. Episode 556 for that. On episode 589, I talked with Ruchika Tolshian on how to create inclusive hiring practices. We talked about looking at what you're doing with hiring and writing job descriptions and what you say or don't in the hiring process in order to attract the diverse talent that so many organizations espouse but don't always follow through on on actions and behaviors. Episode 589, some detailed practical ways to do that. And then finally, I'd also recommend the recent conversation with Dolly Chug, how to respond better when challenged, especially if you're the person with power, how you can respond 
in a more effective way. The other side of this conversation, episode 615 for that. All of those episodes you can find on the coachingforleaders.com website. And if you haven't already, I'm inviting you to set up your free membership at coachingforleaders.com. It's going to give you access to the entire library of episodes since 2011, searchable by topic. One of the benefits of free membership is my weekly leadership guide. Every single week, I am reading relevant news. I'm listening to other podcasts. I am finding videos on YouTube that I think will be helpful to you in your leadership development, and I'm including them in a very concise message to you on email each week, not only with this episode's notes and details and links, but also all of those other resources. It's one of the benefits of free membership. If you'd like to receive it, just go over to coachingforleaders.com and set up your free membership. And while you're there, if you're looking for a bit more, maybe you'd like to hear more from the experts. Each month, I host a conversation with one of the experts who's appeared on the podcast and invite a number of our members into that conversation to ask questions directly of the experts. It's one of the benefits included in Coaching for Leaders Plus, access to all of those recordings in addition to what we do here on the podcast. If you'd like more details on that, go over to coachingforleaders.com slash plus, and you'll find out about that and many more of the benefits inside of Coaching for Leaders Plus. Next Monday, I'm glad to welcome Claire Hughes-Johnson to the show. She is going to be showing us how to approach a reorg a conversation that happens often in organizations and is something that's in front of many leaders. Claire's going to walk us through what are some of the key things we should think about when handling a reorg. Join me for that conversation with Claire next Monday, and I'll see you then.